and welcome to the Day Health Strategies podcast, Unlocking Accountable Care, the healthcare podcast where we talk everything value-based care with the top experts in the field. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Unlocking Accountable Care. This is your host, Sarah bliss I'm a principal with Day Health Strategies, and today I'm sitting down with Lisette Roman, a consultant at our firm. Today, we'll be talking to you about the legislative process of developing a Medicaid Accountable Care Organization program, or ACO program, and also other ways that states can reform the healthcare system and healthcare pricing. Yep, that's right, Sarah. So we have a great episode today. We're sitting down with Mike Canella, uh, who worked for State Senator Walsh in Massachusetts. Um, this episode is pretty packed uh, with lots of interesting information about Massachusetts legislative efforts um, that have taken place to restructure the state Medicaid program, um, as well as other efforts to reform the healthcare landscape as we know it in Massachusetts. But before we dive into that conversation, um, it's pretty thick and we throw around some acronyms and terms. So we want to set the stage by discussing some basic concepts, like some of the levers that states have for reforming the healthcare system. So in the podcast, we talk about two major types of levers. One is alternative payment models, which you'll hear Mike refer to as APMs, um, and the other is price controls. So let's start with APMs. Alternative payment models come in a few different forms, but just at a high level, they are payment approaches that incorporate incentive payments to provide high quality and cost efficient care. So we're not just paying providers to do things to patients anymore. Um, They need to be tied to quality outcomes um, and they're responsible for keeping costs um, under some, some standard. So these can take any forms such as bonus payments, uh, maybe even a global budget where providers get a set amount to take care of all of their patients, um, and they're at risk if they spend more than that, and if they spend less, um, then they get to, in some models, reap those benefits. So because we're talking to Mike about state-level policy levers, we'd like to take just a minute to discuss where the states have the control to affect APMs in different healthcare markets. So we know that states have the most control over Medicaid because those programs are administered at the state level. Next level down, states have some control over the commercial insurance market in their states. Um, And then lastly, they have really the least control over the Medicare programs because those are administered and controlled by the federal government. Right, but let's stay on Medicaid for now, since we do talk extensively about Medicaid ACO programs on this podcast. Um, So ACOs are, yes, a type of alternative payment model. Um, While they are administered by the state, they are overseen by the federal government. And because of this, states have to get permission to do innovative things, like restructure their Medicaid programs to implement implement an alternative payment model like an ACO program. Um, But, you know, in order to, to get this permission states apply for and are granted a waiver uh, by the feds. 
Yeah, and these waivers are actually time limited. For example, the waiver that Massachusetts have is for five years, um, but there's an opportunity to reapply or extend the waiver. Um, and related but separate is funding provided by the federal government to help implement these new programs. Um, and this money is also time limited, but much less likely to be renewed over the initial time period, as you would expect. Uh, Massachusetts, for example, received investment money from the federal government to help start up their Medicaid ACO program. Um, and this money is referred to as the Delivery System Reform Incentive Payment, or DISRIP for short. Yeah, that's a mouthful, so we'll definitely call it district from here on out. Um, and in this episode, you'll hear Mike refer to also other Medicaid ACO programs in other states, which are similar, but they have their own unique programmatic elements and, of course, their own acronyms. Um, so try not to get caught up on that, but if you hear Mike mention things like CCOs in Oregon or IHPs in Minnesota, those are just Oregon's and Minnesota's names for their Medicaid ACO programs. Okay, so we just spent a chunk of time talking about alternative payment models and state-level Medicaid ACOs, but the other major bucket of healthcare reform that we often talk about on this podcast is price control. And price controls are less about changing the delivery system like alternative payment models, um, but more are about the prices for individual healthcare services, such as getting an MRI. Um, So in the U.S., In the commercial market, the government does very little to control or regulate prices. Uh, Most prices are determined by individual insurers that negotiate these rates with individual health systems. For the public programs, though, Medicare and Medicaid, there's really more control over prices because these are um, funded by uh, different government entities. And by contrast, in some other countries, the government will set or regulate prices for all insurance types. This is absolutely not the case in the United States. Right. So let's zoom into Massachusetts again, um, because you'll hear Mike talk about some of Massachusetts uh, specific policy efforts around pricing. So what are we going to hear? We'll hear Mike talk about provider price variation. This is this is interesting. So this is where different healthcare providers charge different prices for the same service. This has been in the media um, a lot lately, actually. So our listeners are probably familiar with this. Um, but for example, a community hospital might charge a dollar for an MRI, whereas a large academic medical center would charge a hundred dollars for that same MRI. Um, Not all price variation is bad, of course. Um, If the variation is because the academic medical center that charges more provides a higher quality service that produces better outcomes, maybe that price difference is justified. Um, However, many times there's not a good reason for price variation. Yeah, um, so in Massachusetts, you'll hear Mike talk about the first step that the state has taken to set up provider uh, price not regulation, but um, really monitoring. Um, So they set up the Provider Price Variation Commission to really just explore the data, examine why prices are variable, and the extent of the problem in Massachusetts. Um, And another way that Massachusetts is exploring healthcare pricing is that the state has a cost growth benchmark, which is really an aspirational growth rate that Massachusetts would love to achieve um, to curb the cost growth of healthcare in the Commonwealth. 
And every year the state collects data on that cost growth and then holds hearings with the healthcare industry leaders and, and uh, stakeholders to examine the causes of that growth and areas of focus for healthcare policy in the state that might help um, you know, lower it in future years. And so as a part of this process, Mike is going to talk to us about the AGO, which is the Attorney General's office who provides some of the data for those hearings. And, you know, I think this has been, this has been a lot of context, but, but pretty necessary. So thanks for, for bearing with us as we got through this uh, kind of long intro. But we're ready now to jump into our interview with Mike Canella. Um, one last note, Mike will mention the Baker administration. Um, just for our listeners who are not in Massachusetts or uh, as familiar with Massachusetts, uh, the Baker administration, that's referring to our current governor of Massachusetts, Charlie Baker. So let's get to the interview now. Welcome to another episode of Unlocking Accountable Care. Um, this is your host for this episode, Lisette Roman, a consultant here at Day Health Strategies. I'm sitting down today with a couple people, um, including Nico Lehman White, a senior analyst here at the firm. Um, and we're having a conversation with Mike Canella, who I'll introduce now. So Mike Canella is a legislative director and counsel for Massachusetts State Senator James Welsh, who has represented the Hampton District in Western Massachusetts in the State House since 2011, and who also served as a state rep in Springfield prior to that. Um, Senator Welch has served on a number of key committees influencing health care, hence our interest in talking to Mike today, um, including as chair of the Joint Committee on Healthcare Financing. So Mike has really played an integral role in helping to analyze and shape health care in the state, um, including development of health care reform legislation and supporting um, and monitoring the Baker administration's transformation transformation of the Massachusetts Medicaid program, MassHealth, into you know, the value-based structure, which now includes 17 ACOs that cover half of its lives and the topic of this specific podcast. Um, so here in Massachusetts, we are known for trying new approaches to regulating uh, healthcare, the healthcare industry. We're very excited to have Mike here today as someone who has both had a front seat audience and been an active shaper of these reforms, and we can't wait to learn about his past experiences and ideas for the future. So without further ado, hello, Mike. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Take us off. If you could just do a little storytelling here. So tell us about the collaboration between Massachusetts and what we've heard um, between Massachusetts and the state of Minnesota about how that relationship informed the ACO program here. Sure. So um Back in 2016, uh, the Baker administration was uh, in deep negotiations with CMS on getting our 1115 waiver approved to do ACO reform here in the Commonwealth. Um, at the same time, um, there were political forces looking to resolve this issue called provider price variation uh, that took the form of a ballot initiative that was ultimately resolved with legislation creating a special commission on provider price variation. And independently of that, um, Senate leadership at the time really wanted to do a reexamination um, in anticipation of ACO reform of what areas uh, the Commonwealth could be looking at to improve. And so as part of that workflow, they reached out to the administration to get some guidance about where should we be um, looking at what's going on in other states? You know, what are some examples of things that other states that maybe have gone further down the ACO pathway 
what have they done? What can we learn from them? And so uh, with the assistance of the Millbank Foundation, we were able to identify a couple different states, including Minnesota, Oregon, Vermont, um, Maryland, uh, Washington. Uh, and we had a brief, uh, narrow discussion around some, some policy issues with the folks in Texas. But the idea was to have those conversations with them, uh, particularly with Minnesota and Oregon, because they have been doing Medicaid uh, ACO work uh, for at least five to eight years longer than we have. And so that led to a trip out to Minnesota uh, in December of 2016 after the waiver had been approved. Uh, and those conversations were with both legislative officials there, executive branch officials, and really sort of focused on what was their ramp up process for making their ACO program work. A lot of heavy conversation about um, real-time data access, uh, their state information exchange that they set up to be able to provide their ACO participants with at least 30-day reports, um, challenges around uh, patient attribution, um, and then also learning about some of the different models of ACO they have there. So they've got you know, IHPs, which are a little bit more virtual, that are, are similar to what we are doing here in the Commonwealth, and then this sort of standout example of Hennepin Health, which is sort of a, a municipality, county-based uh, ACO, where the, the social services of that locality are merged into the ACO model. And so learning about the, the challenges there, and, and in particular with that ACO, understanding the difficulties that um, some providers in the Commonwealth may have in trying to take on the obligation of uh, organizing and providing for some key social determinants of health issues, housing, things like that. So that was sort of the foundation of, of that grounding, and thankfully the administration participated in those trips and conversations with the entire time. Um, and I think uh, based on some of the allocations the administration has made with some of their excess district funding um, towards technical support and targeted investments in workforce uh, support for some of the ACO participants, I think um, some of that work was informed by those conversations. Uh, and maybe this is a good stopping point, but that's kind of like the rough story about where Minnesota fits in. And then the rest of the trip more or less informed um, Senate uh, leadership's workflow. So did the administration feel as though, you know, there was really an imperative for the Medicaid program, um, you know, because of its effects on the budget to redesign it in some way? Or what was really the rationale for, for the shift that was made? Sure. And obviously, I can't speak for the Baker administration myself. Um, but what I will say is that the, the impetus towards doing this restructuring, um, the seeds of it are really in uh, Chapter 24 of the Acts of 2012. Uh, there was a directive goal in there for MassHealth to pursue um, the uptake and expansion of more managed care uh, models of care delivery. Um, that had not ha really happened in a meaningful way in the intervening years. And so there was a sense that um, that promise had yet to be fulfilled. And uh, the Baker administration, along with, I think, you know, uh, members of leadership in both halves of the legislature, really wanted to push things in that direction and doing an ACO transformation process as opposed to just leaning heavily on managed care organizations by themselves was viewed as the best way both to uh, restore some fiscal uh, sanity to the program in terms of the growth trajectory, but also when you're pursuing an ACO type model, you're trying to improve care delivery at the end of the day. And I think, you know, for most folks who care about healthcare policy and, and, and doing these types of interventions, that's really what motivates you. The dollars are important, but it's about trying to build those care delivery flow relationships that ensure that patients are getting appropriate care um, at a reasonable price. Great. 
Um, and thinking about you know revolutionizing care, um, which I guess is a, a exaggerated way of putting it, but making meaningful changes to the way we deliver care. You, know, you mentioned social determinants of health, and um, how you know you've seen that uh, kind of effectively addressed in other states where there were you know some some pretty fundamental differences in the programs and and the um, the way that the, you know social services are, are supported so what does that look like you know from a high level kind of comparatively like here in Massachusetts and what are the unique challenges to you know really kind of bringing social services into the healthcare um, bubble here in the Commonwealth Sure. So um, I would say there's there's a couple issues there. So the first would be, and I'll, I'll, I'll sort of loop back to some specific lessons from some of the states that, that we went and visited. So the, the Hennepin example in Minnesota, um, and then also obviously the Oregon CCO example, you know, they have the benefit of, you know, be having having active county organiz- like uh, governmental units that have been traditional providers of certain types of services, some of which are targeted for being enhanced in an ACO model, particularly like behavioral health services. Um, They have had the advantage of using those existing governmental units as sort of the dividing line to demarcate, you know, who's the attributable population, um, to leverage those local resources that are providing the social services, um, to be more, uh, they have more of a, existing web of relationships that are just advantageous. Whereas in Massachusetts, we don't really have viable active county level units. And even if we did, um, our distribution of healthcare resources and access points um, doesn't really track those units. Um, so that's a bit of a disadvantage we have, which is why I think you know the ACO program as it exists is very much a, a virtual model that relies on different entities coming together to agree to form their ACO structure and 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 um, creating a, a a collaborative pathway where those ACOs have a menu of community partner organizations to work with that might be able to uh, address the uh, service needs of their attributable population. Uh, so in that way, it's a little bit more challenging. Um, so talk about county lines. One of the other issues is other states had the advantage of being able to get some of these social determinants issues approved under a more favorable federal administration. So obviously having a supportive federal administration uh, for doing things that are expansive of what traditional um, healthcare program dollars have gone to pay for helps. Washington managed to get, uh, in the last days of the Obama administration, some pretty uh, expansive social determinants related to housing uh, expansion funding approved under their waiver. Um, whereas here, I know that the administration just finished around trying to negotiate around some housing supports and the best they could do was pre and post housing supports issues and not really the provision of housing, which is a frustration. But that's the challenge you have when you have to have a, a federal partner and the federal partner might have a different uh, agenda either at the time your waiver is being approved or or during the course of your waiver. Uh, and then I would just say the other thing, too, uh, is that other states have just had a longer history of more managed care plan experience in their Medicaid program. Um, and that means that some of these types of relationships, there's there's a lot less um, coordination neurosurgery that needs to happen. There's a lot of effort by, you know, private entities, the administration to basically do this very, um, you know, nuanced cultivating of, of neural connections between different organizations, some of which that may not have worked together before in the past, um, 
and that's trying and that's challenging and it takes time and and one of the tensions there with the waiver structure for doing this is uh, you only get approval for five years typically we're getting close to the end of of that window and you know hopefully we'll have data to show on the progress we've made but this is a very complicated process to do this right um, and we're a little bit behind the ball compared to some other states in terms of building those relationships so what, in your opinion, will be key success factors for the Massachusetts Medicaid ACO program over the remaining few years left? Yeah, so I think the most important thing is going to be able, you know, one of the challenges under, under any waiver program, right, is you are in a contract with the federal government to make good on certain deliverables in exchange for, um, you know, funding, uh, a combination of funding and, and regulatory authority. Uh, that's been given to you to do things that maybe you otherwise couldn't, right? And so the biggest challenge for the state is going to be able to prove to the federal government that we are hitting the targets that we agreed to hit. Um, with ACOs, uh, particularly on the social determinants of health dimension, you know, how you are going to be analyzing that data, and I believe uh, UMass is the primary uh, entity who is going to be crunching a lot of those numbers uh, for the for the audit. Uh you know, we are going to be able to demonstrate to them convincingly enough to get a reauthorization. Now, uh, timing-wise, it's going to be interesting in that we're going to be um, we're going to have to start delivering that data and renegotiating this waiver right around the 2020 election. So we could be dealing with a very different group of people during the course of this waiver negotiation. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. No. That that all makes sense and certainly gels with what you know we're hearing kind of on the ground there's a lot of anxiety about sustainability you know how do we um, grapple with the the fact that these these dollars are going away soon you know what what components of you know what these dollars have enabled can um, you know organizations like ACOs community partners continue to to keep keep going um, so that's that's right, right on point as, as far as uh, what, what we're hearing. Um, but so what what else is coming down the legislative pipelines that that can impact the program, um, you know, federal or state level? Sure. Uh, so speaking primarily from a state level perspective, what I have seen um, over my time in the legislature is there's sort of been this percolation up to uh, an attempt to do like big healthcare reform legislation. Uh, both chambers did healthcare reform legislation last session uh, that could not be resolved in conference at the end of session. Uh, I'd say some of the key components of that uh, really reflect efforts to address provider price variation in the commercial space, uh, attempts to uh, update some scope of practice laws in the Commonwealth, um, some efforts to uh, provide more flexibility um, to providers generally. I mean, you could put scope of practice in that bucket, but there are a few other things trying to uh, expand and better finance mobile integrated health, which can be an ACO uh, adjunctive aid. Um, speaking uh, primarily about the Senate Health Act, um, S2202, uh, there's some directive language in there to uh, have the commercial market move more into APMs that have risk sharing that is comparable to uh, the ACO program in the Medicaid program, uh, mostly because one of the challenges that I think our provider community is dealing with on this issue is where there's a lot of benefits to doing ACO transformation and care delivery transformation through the Medicaid program. You know, you have hands-on state, 
you know, coordination. You have folks who are used to providing a broad spectrum of services, sometimes broader than a lot of commercial uh, paid plan, uh, plans will cover. Uh, and on the other hand, you're asking folks to reorient how they conduct their business of providing care through their lowest reimbursing line of business, uh, which can be challenging. I think that gets to the point you raised about um, concern about sustainability. And so one of the directive goals of, of that legislation was to try to get some alignment uh, with other payers. And obviously, we can't do anything about Medicare, uh, but we can hopefully influence the commercial market such that we can get some payoff for these providers in that space too. So when the, you know you're engaging in this work and you're you're building these relationships and you're making these infrastructure investments, that can have a payoff for you uh, on your higher higher reimbursing book of business. Um, another another big area is um, you know out of network surprise billing has been in the news a lot. Um, that's something that um, you know came up during the course of the prior device variation commission and also. Um, has been raised many times by the Health Policy Commission and other senior lawmakers. So uh, the hope is is that that will be dealt with in some fashion. And then, of course, the big, big, um, possibly even bigger than uh, the issues I've mentioned so far is you know pharmaceutical price transparency initiatives. Um, and all these things have a bearing on what goes on in the ACS space because a lot of these uh, issues relate to what are the fixed input costs that providers are going to have to deal with to manage these um, somewhat uh, challenging, you know, capitated rates around their attributed population. You know, if your pharmaceutical costs are super exorbitant, that puts pressure against that cap. If you don't have the ability to do um, innovative care team design with some increased scope flexibility for certain providers versus having to rely on, you know, just physicians for certain things, um, that may make it more difficult for you to um, succeed under those uh, payment constraints. Same with mobile integrated health access and availability, um, among others. So that's just sort of a small, small subset of things coming down the way. That's great. I actually want to push a little more um, in that topic. So, you know, we're talking about ACOs as you know an um, uh, APM, you know, advanced payment model. Uh, sorry, alternative payment model. Um, there, there is, I think, an emerging conversation about cost control, about you know these payment models as a lever versus an issue like prices. Some people think we need to look more at the prices as, uh, as a lever to pull um, uh, to try to contain costs in healthcare in general. Um, so what, could you give us just like a high level pulse because you're you're talking about both these you know levers you know being discussed um, in in the government so what is what does the conversation look like today and in, in terms of you know opponents and proponents of, of either sure uh, you know speaking uh, to my experiences uh, and on behalf of no one but myself um, you know the uh, issue with the conversation around prices is, uh, really boils down to a couple of dimensions. So the first is, um, I think there seems to be a sense that um, in the commercial space, which is really where this conversation is happening, so there's obviously lots of differentials in prices across payers. But in the commercial space, there is a degree of differential in the prices that people get for the same services that has been demonstrated uh, over and over again um, in data that we collect uh, at the state level here uh, to not be associated with any kind of quality metric or acuity, um, it's, it's unjustifiable, 
right? Uh, the, the, the term from the Preparation Commission was unwarranted variation. Um, and so then when you go down that route, the question is, how do you want to tackle it? Uh, when you look at the underlying causes of this, it really has to do with um, just the market dynamics of how we have actively or passively decided to um, allow for the financing of care in that space, right? Um, there are plenty of people uh, at the state level and nationally are pushing for like Medicare for all type uh, initiatives. Um, and I think part of their frustration is that they view healthcare as being sort of like a public good. Um, and right now it's a public good for a lot of folks that is uh, provided by private actors, uh, paid for uh, by financing that is made available through um, individual contractual relationships, right? And so what we see play out in the Commonwealth is no different from what we see play out in other parts of the United States where uh, those who have better contract negotiation leverage get more favorable terms. Um, and that's on both sides of the negotiation. Uh, you know, we've got a unique multi, slightly multipolar marketplace here. You know, there are other states where there's one dominant insurer or one dominant system. Uh, here we've got a couple of big systems now with the consummation of B.I. Leahy, uh, them and partners. Um, you've got Blue Cross Blue Shield, Massachusetts. That's about 45% of the commercial market space. And so, you know, you go contract by contract, negotiation by negotiation. There are some instances where uh, the insurer has the advantage, and there's some instances where the providers have the advantage in negotiation. Uh, and I think one of the big questions is, you know, how do you correct that problem? Do you try to structure the market um, in a way that counterbalances that disparity? Do you try and um, just sort of make uh, arrears payments? for the harms that have accrued in the past, you know, over time from those who have been chronically underpaid. Um, if you go the arrears route, who pays and how do you allocate that among the different stakeholders? Um, and then even if you decide you want to address the underlying market condition, how do you structure your, um, your, your regulatory mechanism to ensure that, that is accomplished, right? So when we did Chapter 24 of the Act 2012, um, we create a cross-growth benchmark. It's um, an aspirational target. It guides people's conduct. Um, you know, in the context of some of the conversations that have happened uh, at the state house, you know, really uh, what's been on the table on the Senate side, based on legislation that passed last session, uh, is creating some sort of soft cap. You know, if you go over the cap, you get dinged a bit, um, and that funds get reallocated down to those who otherwise should have been paid those monies. On the provider side, um, on the house side, you had more of a focus on the arrears type model of, um, you know, giving those who have been the victims of chronic underpayment uh, large boluses of funds for a certain period of time. Uh, what the direction of those conversations is going to be going forward, you know, any type of policy negotiation, it's always contextual. So there's going to be issues that are going to come up over the course of this session or the next session that are going to shape that. Um, you know, possibly the governor is going to be taking a more active role um, this session in, in introducing some more of his thoughts on these points. Um, and that's going to shape the conversation. Uh, you know, but what's on the table, it's really sort of these, uh, you know, do you want to do a assessment arrears-based approach, uh, a market structural approach, 
some blending of the two. Um, and it's going to be a question of what uh, the provider community, uh, the payer community, and, and the business community really have to weigh in. Because we're talking about the commercial space. Uh, you know, we're talking about the, those are the folks who are buying those products um, that are impacted at the premium dollar level by those prices um, and, and what they're willing to accept and, and, and live with. And, you know, based on the fact that um, these issues couldn't be resolved last session, I think it's fair to say that there are some pretty strong differences of opinion um, among key stakeholders inside the building and also outside the building. Um, it's part of the tension that you kind of have when, you know, healthcare is sort of our number one thing here, right? Uh, but sometimes, like, you're, you're number one, you know, too much of a good thing. It's kind of tensions, right? And, and I think one of the concerns is um, trying to find that balance, right? You know, uh, we love having our number one healthcare institutions, but if our healthcare premiums stop us from having number one, you know, tech innovators stay here or other businesses stay here because the, you know, cost of doing business are too high. That's a trade-off that people are trying to struggle with and grapple with and figure out how to solve. Um, so I don't know where they're going to end up this session, but it's going to be an interesting conversation. Um, and it's going to be fun to watch it. So I'm wondering what your take is on, you know, in ensuring that, you know, all the provider systems are, you know, at least able to, to subsist, whether it be through, you know, uh, financial compensation in arrears or, or similar methods. Yeah. So I think if you would talk to any of the, um, you know, Gateway City Hospitals, you know, you know, Dish Community Hospitals, uh, what they will tell you is that they really just want to have a payment system that gives them a fair shake uh, for the work that they already do. Um, you know, many of them would argue that they're already as lean and as mean as you'd want them to be. Um, and so any movement towards real um, APM or uh, outcomes-based uh, payment models that actually look at the, the, the work that they do with the resources that they have. I think they're happy to play that game um, and are potentially better positioned because they have been um, trying to accomplish uh, more uh, to address the needs they have to in the communities they serve with less um, than other institutions. And so I think in that way, they're sort of primed and ready to succeed under that model. But, you know, given that we operate in a, these projects operate in a multi- payer environment, um, so long as there's continued, you know, payment complexity across payers is going to be a challenge for them as a resource strain. Uh, and so long as they aren't able to fully realize the, uh, the, 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 the same kind of benefits that they would get um, on the orders of magnitude, they would get payment-wise in the commercial space as they would in the Medicaid ACO space, that's going to present a challenge for them uh, as well. Uh, and, and on the administrative point and the payment complexity point, I mean, you know, AGO released as part of Cost Trends last year, pretty extensive report analyzing the ways in which even within a payer provider dyad, the levels of variance and complexity around payment for the same services at the same side of care can be. Um, you know, those types of distortions, granted, they're sort of they're sort of the, the, they're the consequences of what you do when you rely on just, you know, these individual negotiations to, to, to get to yes. Uh, but the way that plays out for providers is really excessively complicated modeling around how can I project forward what my revenue is going to be when I've got, even with just one payer relationship, 
so many different rules that govern how I'm going to be reimbursed for uh, the same service. Uh, and so any movement towards, uh, even if it's not the same payment level, but alignment of payment mechanisms and alignment of payment variables, um, I think will allow some of these hospitals to succeed better. Uh, the question is, you know, how much time um, are they going to have to be able to lean into that transformation? Um, and then, you know, also, are, are we going to be doing enough to create the environment to, you know, to actually support what they want to do? You know, uh, everyone, uh, the reason, part of the reason why this ACO rollout has been as successful as it has been is there is, from my point of view, pretty uniform embrace of like, we want to make this work. Agreed. Agreed. Well, Mike, I think we, we have to cut ourselves off there, but um, thanks so much for bringing you know, the legislative perspective into the conversation. We really haven't had that yet um, on un- unlocking accountable care um, and for sharing with us some of the kind of the key influencers on um, why uh, the mass health model was designed the way it was. That was that was really interesting to hear. Um, so thank you. Um, and to our listeners, thanks for listening to another episode of Unlocking Accountable Care. Yeah, thanks for having me. If you are interested in learning more about accountable care or how organizations can succeed in today's healthcare system, please visit our website, www.dayhealthstrategies.com. Check out our blog, follow us on Twitter, and join our mailing list. We regularly post content relevant to current healthcare issues and overcoming challenges in delivering value-based care. Unlocking Accountable Care is a production of Day Health Strategies. Direction and editing by Max Blumenthal. Additional support and research by Emily Eibel and Nico Lehman. Our producer is Rosemary Day. Special thanks to Purple Planet Music for the use of their songs. <laughs>